I've lived through some very interesting ups and downs globally um, as an archaeologist and then I became an educator. I actually lived and worked uh, in various different spaces around the world that happened to be in the middle of tumultuous times. So when I was an archaeologist, I, I worked in Hungary at the time that the uh, Civil War was going on. And so, you know, we were we were digging at the border, and so the U.S. Cobra is going overhead, and the bombing was <laughs> part of my daily, my daily diet. Welcome to Out in the Field, a podcast about the people and places of Frontenac County, a 4,000-square-kilometer chunk of forest, rock, field, and water located in eastern Ontario on Anishinaabe, Huron-Wendat, and Haudenosaunee land. I've been wanting to tell this story for years, and when I moved here in 2013, I joined the local newspaper as a journalist, quickly got to meet many of the interesting characters that call Frontenac County home. Some of them you're going to meet in the following episodes as we travel around the four municipalities, talking to folks about why this place is a great place to call home. It's a special place, and as you get to know the people, I think you'll agree. Oh, that was 99. And then before that, in 96, I was in Fiji. Also, again, um, finishing graduate school and, uh, or no, finishing my undergrad, actually, in archaeology. But um, that was between the Civil War as, uh, there as well. And so we were, it was a um, lockdown uh, military curfew period. Um, so that was going on as well. And then uh, as an educator, I um, worked and lived in Egypt for two years and was there during Arab Spring. Um, my, my partner was stayed there. I actually left because I got into a conflict with the owner of the school, and my um, my life was in danger. So um, I had to flee the country. <laughs> I feel like I need one of those like interactive maps that shows like a plane flying to each location. That's just like then Terry was here. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. Then. Um, and then from there, Mark and I ended up in Nepal, and we were caught um, at a political crisis there, um, where the whole country went into lockdown uh, as well, and the UN um, helped uh, evacuate us. Um, so yeah, this is like this is all part of my life. <laughs> Not a lot. Those who know my story kind of go, okay, whatever, just don't hang out with Terry, and uh, life will be fine. Terry's partner Mark is a park interpreter at Murphy's Point Provincial Park, south of Perth, Ontario, and is a biologist and educator who is also an active birder. This uh, Wolf Island has a, has a pretty standard, it is a standard migratory path, um, and um, here, and he was, he was spending a lot of time down at, uh, in the county actually, at Prince Edward Point, because that's also on the migratory path for uh, different birds that don't come here. But in general, this is, yeah, it's a bit of a haven for uh, for ornithologists. And so he was going birding on the island one day in the summer of 2014, I guess. And I just said, yeah, I'm coming with you today, which I didn't often do, but um, I, I did. Something was telling me I needed to. And then we were driving around and 
Um, we came right upon this house, which is um, it uh, was an old B and B that had been converted in the '80s to a B and B. It was and. The kitchen was one of the original homesteads on the island. It was a horn homestead from the 1850s. And um, it had been totally upgraded in the 80s by the brilliance of Seven Sandy Hunter, who, who's moved to Montreal. And I'm not sure if they're still with us anymore. But um, uh, And so it was made into a commercial grade, even as well. So everything was brought up to spec for, for as a business. And um, it had kind of, they left about 10 years ago now, and, and um, it really didn't have uh, someone to love it after that. It was in between different hands, and so we came upon it, saw it, and right away I knew that was our, our home. Mark and I both um, have lived in big cities around the world and our time with big cities had just kind of come to an end and we had decided with him getting the job with Ontario Parks, I was working for the city of Kingston at the time, the house, we both fell in love with the house um, and the property to move to the country but only be 20 minutes from downtown and just everything about this seemed really right and um, uh, you know, there's an indigenous aspect to being here as well. There, I know the history now a little bit better of the Button Bay and, and um, uh, the indigenous history of this area and, and spaces. And as an archaeologist, I used to pride myself that I could look out over landscapes and have an indication of how, um, you know, hunters and, and gatherers would have envisioned living on that landscape and so there's a spot here actually just on the edge of our property that I, I am pretty sure was an occupation campsite occupation for Anishinaabe people at one point and um, and because it's just perfect in the location for hunting and fishing in Button Bay. of indigenous occupation here is written in the you know the stories that have that have been published about the island and its history gives the indigenous content you know a page or two compared to then the French Irish Scottish history uh, which then which then has 400 pages so um, uh, and and people say well there is you know there's no proof or there's no evidence of it and I just just sit and kind of then hang my head and go but that's that doesn't mean it didn't exist and oral tradition from the local folks tell me and you and everybody else that this is what's happened and they're like yeah but where is it on paper and that's and that's where I just said okay you, you totally don't understand history <laughs> at, at all and when you know and I as a historian who taught history uh, I say well you know think about the word itself his story is always written by the winners 
and usually male. So that's pretty exclusionary of the rest of what happened. And, uh, you know, what about those those stories? Just because they're not written down doesn't mean they didn't happen. Tell that to, you know, tell that to your grandmother. <laughs> It has been said that dreams and imagination are more powerful than actual facts. What we imagine ourselves to be, we are that total imagination. What we imagine ourselves to be, that is what we create in the outer world. It's true, the good old days are gone forever, belonging to the past, but wonderful simple memories can be recalled and put down on paper. That is an excerpt from Dave Dawson's book, The Homemade Lathe. Dave is a musician, songwriter, poet, telephone technician, but maybe best overall classified as a storyteller. Friends of mine from Cardinal Cafe in Charlotte Lake suggested I talk to Dave for this podcast, as he loves to talk and has many great stories. Well, um, I, I, I have to go back. Uh, I was born in a place called Huntington, Quebec, in, in 1933, and then uh, it was just before the war ended. In 1945, I think we were there for 45, we moved to another farm uh, in the county of Brome, which is on the Vermont border. And uh, it was a whole uh, whole new ball game for me and for my brother. And my brother, uh, older brother, had, uh, was in the Air Force, RCF at the time. I grew to love the mountains, and I still do very much. But in those days, from hunting, you, well, you could see the Adirondacks in the, across New York State, but, uh, you, could, you know, it was quite a, a hike to get to them. But anyway, here I'm in Brome County, living right in the center, you know, of the, the big mountains. And, the, and I guess uh, I wrote quite a bit about in poetry, uh, poetic lines about Brome County. And the mountains, Return of the Mountains. And, and uh, I think the first uh, book that I put out called Raining on the Mountain. And here I'm sitting, and it was pouring rain. I'm under a big tree, and, uh, and my, my pad is wet. When I'm writing this uh, poem, it called Raining on the Mountain. Yeah, and, uh, and of course, that's how, that's how stories and poems are born. You know, you get an idea... But that particular day, it was, you know, it was raining. <laughs> well, I, th- I, I think, like, uh, a lot of the poems that I've read of yours are um, about place. And, and a lot of the short stories that I've read, too, I've been reading The One Lunger, and a lot of those are about places. Like, they're, they're about stories of place, or, um, yeah, the poems that I've read are all kind of, about, like, when I read your poems, I picture you sitting in your cabin writing about, or, like, being in that place and just kind of, like, taking in your surroundings and feeling moved enough to have to write it down. Yeah, that, that's, that's pretty, pretty much as I as John. Um, and the other ones, you know, and I, I was very fortunate uh, um, in my life to uh, uh, move around a lot. I worked uh, on, it's called the MCL, Mid-Canada line, and uh, just for a little while. And then I went to what they call the Pine Tree line for RC Victor out of Montreal. And um, 
Uh, that was, I think, when I started writing, writing earnest, you know, and uh, all the things that happened. His stories are filled with the characters he met along the way and the places he passed through. Putting on one of his records or reading one of his short stories can feel like opening a time capsule from some small rural outpost in northern Ontario or Quebec. The characters that show up in his songs and books are rendered so vividly that you wait for them to get up, pipe in hand, smelling of machine oil and sawdust, and walk off the page right into the room. His poems are vernacular wrapped in flannel, waltzing down the river of his imagination, a mix of stories from his adventurous life told as if he had just had to write them down to believe them. It was quite obvious early on while sitting with Dave's collection of stories and songs that he was a curious person, and that he moved through life with his eyes and ears wide open. That everything is worth noting, as it is all interconnected. He's a sensitive person with his antenna up, always waiting to receive his stories. And he continues to write to this day, as it's just something that he has to do. I think uh, where we find ourselves, you know, in, in the present, you know, um, and to, how would I say, to grasp onto that moment and uh, whatever is happening around us and just make even a note of it. And maybe a week later or two weeks later, oh, I think I can write over that now. I assumed when I first started reading Dave's stories that he was a deeply nostalgic person. So many of his tales recount his youth in Quebec on the farm or his first jobs as a kid. Dave explains it to me like this. Uh, yeah, nostalgia. Uh, nostalgia is good, um, providing one doesn't get trapped back there. And that's what happened to uh, a friend of mine. Uh, he, I would call it being trapped back in, in the past and uh, not be able to bring himself up to the present moment. And um, it's not that I learned that uh, experience, but it's just something that... You know, you know, it can drift back in the past, write something about the past, and then, and then um, put it in the book and uh, and go on something that's happening right now. Yeah, because it seems like if you only lived in the past, then you wouldn't be able to like write poetry in the present because it because you have to be present, right, in order to be noticing all of these things. It, that, that's exactly it. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, you know, kind of grateful for all these things that happened to me. And then look back and say, well, I uh, uh, I came to the, the planet Earth and I think I did something. Um, Dave tells me how eventually he gets a guitar and his poems and prose start to turn into songs. When I worked for Northern Telephone, this would be 1976, I suppose. Excuse me, 1966. This guy I knew had a, a called a D28 Martin. And uh, so it was in, uh, I was working at a new Liskert, and he was uh, living in North Bay. So I go down, and uh, um, he wanted two fifty, and I said, uh, "We'd take two and a quarter." And he said, "Yep." So anyway, I could I get up a place called Martin River, and I couldn't wait to get the guitar out. So there's a little bench by the lake, and I and it was getting twilight. So I get the guitar out, and I start playing and start singing. And then I didn't realize there was a couple and, sitting the, and I heard this clapping. <laughs> and I didn't know there was anybody around listening to me. And the guy goes, boy, he said, that's, 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 where'd you hear that song? I said, I wrote those two, those two songs, two last songs. 
you know, boy, you know. So anyway, that was the story. And I still got the D28. That was 1966, yeah. Do you remember what songs you played that day? Yes, I do. Uh, uh, Where the Wabi River Flows and North Newlisker. All the wilderness, the bush, and everything is hush. And the wind just seems to blow your blues away. Okay, Dick, take it out. about his influences. I asked him which writers he loves the best, and he was quick to answer with Robert Service and Henry Drummond. Service's work I was familiar with. He wrote The Cremation of Sam McGee and The Shooting of Dan McGrew, poems that captured the magic of the North, much like Dave's poems captured his surroundings, with a similar cadence and musicality. Drummond I wasn't familiar with, and Dave, a passionate advocate for Drummond's work, launched into his history and then into reciting moments from some of his favorite poems by Drummond. And he wrote, uh, I don't know how many books, I think six or seven, in 1991 to 1906. He died in 1906. And um, um, he was a doctor. And they, he would do um, um, these poems. He would be, uh, as a doctor, he would go into these habitat farms in the mountains in the ranches where, he, where he, his office was. And he'd see something, and he, you know, he'd, uh, he'd go home and write it. Here's Dave reciting one of his favorite Dr. Henry Drummond poems. Point, getting right, ripe on the ear. Most every day rap uh, is passed on the rabbit, and some voyeur singing some old chanson about girl down the river to pass him, bad he must leave her. But he's coming back soon with beaucoup de And then the fall and the winter come around us, and... The birds and summers all fly away, and north wind is bolder, and it gets colder, and the night time is nearly as long as the day. You think that would bother the habitat farmer? Ah, not at all. He's happy. He feels satisfied because cold may last a good while. So long as a woodpile, she's ready to burn the stove by and by. <laughs> it's really it's really quite a it's really quite a like a, a roller coaster to listen to and try and follow what's happening because it's so it's so fast and and musical and and kind of undulating it's amazing to hear the joy in dave's voice as he recites these poems how he embodies drummond's characters and the ease with which he slings off these words each year in cobalt ontario a town where drummond lived part of his life there's a poetry festival celebrating his work dave tells me with pride but not bragging that he has made a bit of a name there for himself as a wonderful performer of Drummond's works. I kept looping back to this idea of nostalgia while reading Dave's stories, and I felt like there was a longing for the old days, some melancholy for the way things were. And I was still curious about Dave's upbringing and what made him sensitive to the human condition and the stories of the everyman. He then touched on this beautiful and heartbreaking story from Montreal when he was only 25. You'll see that uh, the night I sang the Jimmy Rogers song said, that um, the title of that CD. Well, there's there's quite a story behind that. Um, her name was Anita. Her, I say her name is Anita because she's still much alive on the other side. And uh, Christmas Eve in 1958, uh, we went to Montreal. I was working for Bill up in Saint Augustine, and uh, 
and uh, we got engaged right with my mother, uh, and we went to listen to the um, the carols in the Christchurch Cathedral down on St. Catherine Street, and Mum was there, and uh, she was so glad that Nanita was going to be her daughter-in-law. So anyway, that was that was that. So uh, we struck off for home with in Huntington, uh, where Nita lived. And anyway, had an accident, a head-on collision. The Nita died in the car, my car. Oh my God! Yep. So, so you'll see, the um, Nita sang Jimmy Rogers songs, and she liked Jimmy Rogers. She said, "See, I, I like the love the way you yodel." <laughs> I said, "Well, I used to be better than that uh, years ago, you know, when I was a younger kid." And uh, so, anyway, she would hum along, and we'd uh, sing my song. Get in the back seat of the car. And uh, I'd, uh, she liked to uh, have a shot of rye or a bottle of rye, a flask of rye, and, and I would I'd have a couple of bottles of beer and just sing my heart out to her, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and anyway, uh, yeah, so that's the story about Anita, but she's, uh, she was an RN, and uh, we say we're, we're, we'll meet each other someday. Does that does that loss at such a young age of Anita passing away? Does that has that worked its way? Is that something that you've like? Did you deal with it through your writing and stuff? Like I lost my father ten years ago, and I, as a musician, I, I wrote I wrote about it, and I traveled the world playing the songs, and it was like it was cathartic for me and therapeutic, and I think at the time it was horrible and it was heartbreaking, and playing the songs on stage every night was very difficult. But looking back, I think it was like. A good thing to do. I kind of wrote myself through that grieving process. Is that something that you 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 found yourself doing as well? Yes, yes. I would say that's that's uh, that's pretty well the way. It's about the size of it. Yeah. Um, but to uh, there is a case again. We talked earlier about about uh, about getting trapped yeah. back there, and um, I have to go into a, a, a friend of mine who from. Um, North Carolina, and uh, she is a medium, and she is the uh, most wonderful person I ever run into as far as things like that goes. And um, she told me, she said one day, this is over the phone, but I've met her in person several times, and she said, um, there's somebody here by the name of Anita, and she says, uh, she asked you to light a white candle, and on May the sixth, May the seventeenth of that year, and that would be going back, I would say around, uh, I would say nineteen ninety one, nineteen ninety two. Um, she will contact you, and uh, and I'm sitting there on May the sixteenth, and I thought it was a street light. I'm in Charlotte Lake, is the street light. And anyway, there's this other light comes around, and and uh, there she is, just uh, head and shoulders. And um, she didn't say anything, but uh, and then when I talked to this lady Glenda, and she said um, she wanted you to know that that was her destiny, so don't rack your keep racking your head against the wall, you know, because that was that was her destiny, and. Um, 
and she says, um, this is the, the medium says, Glenda says, Anita is here, and she says, oh, you would probably would like to know what I do. And uh, so anyway, Glenda says, she says that she takes people across who have been shot at a body. She said because she has been shot at a body with the impact and the accident. And over here, she says, you don't get a job like that unless you've been through it when you're on the earth plane. And uh, so anyway, everything, it was something that I could, I could almost say, okay, I can, I'm finished for that chapter just because of that. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So you yeah. you saw you you kind of saw like a, an apparition of her under the streetlight. Oh, oh yeah, it was, I thought it was a streetlight because it was in the window. You see, and then it moves, and uh, was that scary? Of course, uh, not really, not really. Uh, um, I can't say that. Uh, um, it's beautiful. No, it, 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 it didn't scare me at all, it, but it, 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 it sealed, it sealed a chapter, let's say, like I said earlier, it's chapter. And uh, let me go on to other things. I'm going back quite a few years, you know, with this 1990, maybe, I'm, I'm, I'm too sure. I'm not but anyway, Nothing could go wrong In the backseat of my car Just you and my guitar The night I sang those Jimmy Rogers songs And when I sang to you The time, oh, how it flew In the east we greeted that newborn day How you listen all the while even now I see that smile The smile that always drove my blues away I'd pretend to be a train On that whistle, sweet refrain Thanks for listening to Out in the Field, a podcast about the people and places that make up Frontenac County. The show is produced by me, Jonas Bonetta, in Mountain Grove, Ontario. Check out the show notes for more information on our guests in this episode. There you will also find links to the music, poems, and other stuff that made this episode come together. Don't forget to subscribe wherever it is you get your podcasts and to tell your neighbors about it too. Stay safe. Peace. And when you smiled at me It wasn't hard to see that I felt just like a king on a throne Back then you were my biggest fan And you let me be a man Then I knew I wasn't in this world alone But someone needed